Welcome everyone to Black Coffee and Theology. Hello everyone. Hey. <laughs> so, it is good to be with you all again. And on today's episode, I have the Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney and she is a Hebrew biblical scholar, an Episcopal priest, a former army chaplain and congregational pastor in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. And she is an editor, an essayist, and author of several books, right? And currently is the right Reverend Sam B. Holsey, professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School. And I loved having this conversation as we get into talking about uh, a women's lectionary for the whole church years, A and W, and just get into, tap into our conversation together. I was so honored uh, to be able to sit down for this conversation. So sit back and relax and get into our conversation. We see uh, in that pairing that then Hagar becomes um, an exemplar for who Christ is. Uh, so when I say type of Christ, I don't mean in a theological sense, uh, although one could probably spin out some parallels about, uh, you know, she didn't give her body uh, willingly. But so that's what I'm doing is using these enunciations as part of the backdrop of Mary's story and taking seriously who it is that Christ is and how it is that he came into this world and holding him in conversation with the enslaved. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. And I am joined uh, by, again, by the esteemed guest, Dr. Gaffney. Thank you again for coming on the pod. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yes. So everyone, um, I want to say, as the intro will have already talked a bit about our guest, I was introduced first uh, by Dr. Gaffney and a lot of her scholarship through, first through reading uh, some of her works and her writing uh, in Mitzi Smith's um, collected reader, I Found God in Me, which we'll talk a bit about. And it caused my heart to come alive with first the works of womanist scholarship and then um, I then since uh, was introduced again through uh, Mia, who many of you know, <laughs> Reverend Mia, and, uh, and Mia speaks highly of Dr. Gaffney. And, <laughs> and, and so yes, and, and then following Dr. Gaffney on Twitter is uh, a delight <laughs> because, oh, <thank> you. <laughs> because you get some of everything. So thank you. Um, thank you. Truly. I, you get science fiction, which I would love just to talk on this podcast, just about science fiction thoughts, but that's not why we're here. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, 
yeah, so you're here, you're in the building, the virtual building. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so my first question, usually to all my guests is, tell us a bit about yourself, what's important to you, and how you show up in the world. I am a daughter of Southern parents who was raised on the East Coast. So I think of myself as cosmopolitan in that way that I can fit into some degree in a variety of contexts. Literature is important to me. I love to read. I enjoy stories, which is why I enjoy science fiction. So I love movies, which is a visual story form. Um, I love the literatures of scripture. Uh, I love to wrestle with them and wrestle in them. I love cats and have one or am kept by one. I like to eat. The way in which I show up in the world is fiercely, whether it is in terms of social justice in the streets, whether it is in the pulpit, uh, preaching Black Lives Matter, preaching against white supremacy, preaching against anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, bringing my whole self into my classroom. So I would say fiercely. I love that. And I think that's a beautiful segue into our conversation because one thing about this podcast is, is that I've tried to make the theological table accessible to everyday people. And there are a number of people who will never be able to go to Bible school who listen. And as well as there are Bible teachers that listen, but a lot of people are hungry to get theological education and maybe finances are a barrier and maybe there are other systemic issues that are barriers to them. So one thing that I love about how you show up in the world is that you show up fiercely in all those different arenas, but you're able to make theology known in a way that people can touch and feel. And I love that in your, a lot of your work that it seems like you make that a point um, to do. And is that, is that, and I don't want to assume how much do you intentionally do that? Do you think about that often or? I think it's good pedagogy to be able to be read by more than one kind of conversation partner. Hmm. So the notion of writing a technical paper only for technical readers and having that be the extent of your engagement with the work for me is unsatisfying because while certain aspects of the scientific world, which was my previous career, may need to be in small circles of people who are going to go out and do the work, the biblical text is influential. Whether people have a positive or negative relationship with it, whether they understand themselves to be in relationship with it or governed or guided by them, it uh, perfuses our society. Yes. So if we're going to do biblical studies 
and do something that is meaningful and interesting, then it has to be able to be communicated beyond fellow specialists. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. And that leads me to your, your work that I, that I cut my teeth on, so to speak, which is a womanist midrash on Zipporah. And I, <laughs> um, my, when people hear this, they, they will have been sick of me because they, they were sick of me when I originally read it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the group chat was like, enough. Um, <laughs> because, uh, and so you wrote this in uh, this work, I found God in me. And I was at this turning point in my Christianity where I was trying to leave what I thought was white evangelicalism and what I thought at the time that that was the fullness of Christianity, what I thought was a fullness of scholarship, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I did not know other black scholars um, at that time. And I was trying to find my way, so to speak. And, you know, now being 38, I, I know a lot more than I did then, obviously. But at that time, coming across this, I, I just on a whim bought this book, you know. And, uh, and so reading this womanist midrash on Zipporah illuminated to me all that was possible in, in biblical scholarship. And here you were, um, I felt like it felt almost like play in the text. And here you were translating, but also giving like life-giving theology at the same time. And it felt like fiction in some ways, but it was, it was real hard-earned theology at the same time. And previous to that, I did not have it felt like one or the other. You could have play or you could have theology, but you cannot have both. And what I found in, in your writing there, as you were illuminating this woman uh, in, in the biblical text was, it, it totally revolutionized how I could do theology myself. So first I wanna say what, what, was your thought process in writing this work and uh, this womanist midrash? And can you give us a few thoughts um, uh, here? So first of all, I'm a biblical scholar. Yes. I'm doing biblical scholarship and I'm doing womanist biblical scholarship. Yes. And womanist midrash is a larger project. Uh, the first volume of which came out in 2017. Uh, the primary material for that volume was so broad that when we decided on the contours of the volume, I had a number of pieces left over. And so when people would ask me to contribute to a volume or something, I would spin out uh, these pieces that were essentially left on the cutting room floor. Womanist Midrash is a, a biblical interpretive project that is deeply rooted in, in classical Jewish Midrash, meaning... Yes that it begins with the text in Hebrew, that it is a way of reading and asking questions and beginning to answer those questions in conversation with the rabbinic tradition, uh, with the rabbis, and in my case, with the earliest layer 
of that tradition, the Tanaitic period. So things like the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Midrashim Rabbah. It is also the product of my experience as a daughter of the Black church, as a person who heard uh, Black preachers engage in the sanctified imagination, which is a way of going beyond the text to provide a richly nuanced uh, description and image, uh, uh, setting a scene, inviting congregation into a living narrative. And those words, sanctified imagination, became uh, a, a waypost so that the preacher would invoke them and then the congregation would be aware that what they're going to say is not actually in the Bible, but they would go with the preacher because that uh, expansion of text was framed by those words and it made it possible even in a very literalist context for someone who claimed uh, literal fidelity with, with all the problems of that statement uh, to still be creative and imaginative. So I looked at the practice of the sanctified imagination in my own preaching as a black woman in the preaching in which I was nurtured. And I looked at my academic training and I said that the practice of the sanctified imagination in black preaching functions like a kind of indigenous midrash in black Christianities. So I uh, held those two notions together, uh, reading and writing as a womanist, as a black feminist, and engaging the text in a midrashic pattern. So starting with the text in Hebrew always and only, uh, translating that text, making it apparent to the non-Hebrew reader, what are some of the nuances in the text, some of the things that have been mistranslated uh, lightly and egregiously, and then uh, building out that character, telling their story, telling her story, and when necessary, writing a new chapter, all of which is part of the ancient and enduring practice of Midrash. And then when, re when rewriting that new story, can you tell us a bit about how you go about in do it, doing that? I mean, obviously you have this framework that, that is kind of upholding you that you've just spelled out for us, but how you go about doing that? And then what are the implications of that uh, rewriting of that new story? So expanding a text or adding a second chapter is a long, uh, long held practice of biblical scholarship that forces the reader to contend with what is said and what is not said, what is explicit and what is implicit. And when one extends a narrative or answers the question that lie unanswered in a narrative, um, one can do so in a variety of ways. Because of my particular training, I start with uh, the genre of the literature, the kind of character, the kind of story, um, what would be necessary for this story to unfold. Um, I take a look at the way the biblical text often abbreviates things. So you, my students laugh when I point out you've gone from someone being born to having an adult child who has had a child in the same verse within four words, right? Someone was born and then the name of their son is. So we've missed a whole life. And there are things that are common to our human experience that we put into that life. So we can say, well, at a minimum, this person was eh, 13, 14 before they reproduced. Somewhere in there, 
they met an acceptable partner. So, and so there are things that you can just elucidate from the human experience. And reading and writing as a womanist, as a black feminist means that there are certain questions I'm going to have, certain uh, questions my characters are going to have that are rooted in womanist principles, uh, like the ethical well-being of the entire community, uh, questions from the perspective of Black women and reading and writing as a womanist means looking at race and gender and uh, class and ability and orientation and embodiment, looking at all of those things together and providing a narrative that responds to or engages those questions and concerns. Yeah, it, yes. And I think some of this obviously is, you know, normal to you now but I, I think one one thing that is refreshing particularly those of us who have been either in the christian space for a long time or who are coming to the theological table of study it's refreshing because a lot of this isn't taught to us originally right as we're growing up in church i mean i grew up as an atheist but coming to theology a lot of this is new, it is refreshing. And I think that that is why it feels exciting, right? Some of it, you know, as this midrash is given to us, part of this is an ancient uh, thing, but for us in, in the way in which you do it uh, is exciting, right? So um, yeah, and especially because you're bringing this womanist portion to it and you're spelling that out. And I think that that unique dynamic for a lot of us gives us the ability to see ourselves and to see a way forward for society. And so I think that that is so unique, right? Uh, yeah. So the text is often a set of bones and the flesh that we put on them um, varies by experience and so for great many of us the bones that we the flesh that we encountered on the bones of the text was the flesh put there by uh white uh cishet uh, biblical scholars and biblical interpreters uh, but there's there's room on the bones for a different kind of flesh and what reading the text with with black women uh, with other people who are different uh, demonstrates is that the text is pluripotent and can be understood in a variety of ways and need not constantly be read in a way that is culturally harmful or death dealing, uh, that the text is living and alive. And in the same way, as some of those very conservative preachers you know would, would say, you know, I can preach this chapter five different ways and each time it's a living word of God and that's not a confusing statement in the same way uh, a narrative a character can be told 550 or 500 different ways and still be a living word uh, but it's going to look like a very different loaf it might not even be a single loaf uh, because of who is doing the baking who's doing the confecting going back to the early earlier metaphor who is putting flesh on the bones and in whose image that flesh is created. Yes, exactly. And then sometimes those meals that other people were making was indeed 
to use your words, death dealing. Um, it was a poisonous meal. Um, so I appreciate um, I appreciate that. And then for even spelling out how you use midrash and the womanist uh, uh, elements to create to create uh, truly, uh, which is a great segue to talk about these lectionaries. Uh, um, uh, I know again same group chats that I was uh, <laughs> beating like you in those group chats yes I know <laughs> the <laughs> the various group chats that I am in either they love me or uh, many of them they say <laughs> you are a book harasser uh, when it's time <laughs> um, <laughs> when it's time for a new book to come out I am a harasser and relentless um, <laughs> because hey it's time we're getting these books so when uh, I saw you originally announce uh, these lectionaries <laughs> I was excited uh, truly uh, the streets were hurting for <laughs> these lectionaries. <laughs> I love that. The streets were hurting. The streets for were of, for lack of good lectionaries. The streets were thirsty. Um, and so um, so I backing up for the lay people to help us understand who may not be even familiar with uh, liturgical things, can you help us? with understanding just a, a word on lectionaries in general and in the liturgical, you don't have to spell out the liturgical calendar. Um, people can do their Googles, but uh, how, <laughs> um, uh, but how lectionaries can help uh, us in general. Uh, I will start with the liturgical calendar because uh, Christianity uh, like its elder sibling Judaism uh, is, is a cyclic tradition with uh, repeating events, uh, life cycles, mm. and celebrations and observances. And the minority of the Christian tradition sort of taking on Easter and, Christian, and Christmas and then sort of flails about for the rest of the year. You are absolutely right. The majority of the, Christ, of the Christian tradition composed of Roman Catholics, honestly, all by themselves. And then when you add the Anglicans and Episcopalians, uh, the Orthodox of various kinds, uh, Presbyterians and other reformed folk, uh, some of the Methodists, American Baptists, uh, individual congregations uh, among you, you and UCC, then uh, you have the majority of the, the Christian tradition uh, on this planet that follows uh, what I've described is as a preaching calendar for people who are unfamiliar with it. In addition to all of the observances of the year in the life cycle of the church and the life cycle of Jesus and the life cycle of the Blessed Virgin and the Holy Family, uh, there are a set of preaching texts that uh, clergy in these traditions hold in common so, you know, one Sunday a year, everybody's preaching on the Good Shepherd, and uh, on a Sunday that has come to be called Hordom Sunday, everybody was preaching on Gomer. And so the churches share these texts, which provide them with a Hebrew Bible lesson and a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel. Uh, that's the broad pattern throughout most of the year. Uh, but the, those lectionaries, those calendars of preaching were uh, designed uh, primarily by men, the revised common lectionary that... Um, the Protestants use may have had some, some women on 
that I'm, I'm not. Uh, androcentric, even more androcentric than the Bible. Um, my work in Women's Midrash and in my earlier work, Daughters of Miriam, study of women prophets in ancient Israel and the lectionaries are all come out of this figure 111. And from my uh, dissertation advisor that there are 111 women in the Hebrew Bible whose names are preserved. Well, I give people this quiz all the time, you know, and they can count to six, if not four. So the thought of having projects, uh, books, lectionaries, what have you, where people get to know these characters who are on the margins. So I uh, decided to create a new lectionary after uh, preparing to pe preach, hating the text, whining about it on Facebook and Twitter as I want to do, and being told by all sorts of people, I should just go ahead and make one. So I created uh, these lectionaries following the traditional pattern, which is a three-year cycle, years A, B, and C. Uh, each year focuses on a, a synoptic gospel. A is Matthew, then we go Mark and Luke. John is mixed, uh, sprinkled in like seasoning along the way. But because there'll be churches that would be interested in this project and interested in preaching on women for the whole year, but wouldn't want to be locked into a single gospel, I did year W, which is a, a new iteration. And so it is a one-year lectionary for a church that's not going to go through a full three-year cycle, wants to have a year of preaching on women that goes through all the observances of the calendar. And uh, because I'm an Episcopal priest, so uh, it's, the, it's the Anglican and Episcopal calendar, our principal feasts, but those are shared with, with other Christians, and has all four gospels in there and takes one uh, through a year of preaching uh, on texts about women, with women, where women are centered, women are, are obscured, and when women are not present at all, uh, ask the preacher to preach on behalf of women and engage the lack of women in the text in a particular way. Yeah, and I thank you for you even breaking down the year A and W, which was going to be my next question. Uh, and one thing that I've, I've seen you talk about in other places is translating two things, translating women back into the text, which you you spoke on a bit, and gender expansive language, which is all throughout both of these works. And can you talk about the implications of why that's important and, and why the church at large needs to grapple with this, uh, both of these two things. Uh, languages have uh, categories in which it's difficult to see who's inside, uh, collectives, collective plurals. And because uh, we are the product of a society that is ancestrally and to this day uh, patriarchal and androcentric, and there's wide swaths of misogyny uh, in society and culture as well as in the church. What happens is that uh, words collectives are often presumed to be uh, exclusively male, and then uh, women are written out. So. A, a word like ben, which means son, but also means child, 
Um, for, if you look at some of your older Bibles, you'll see uh, the sons of Israel. God led the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Well, do we leave the daughters behind? Well, of course not. So then trend, some would just simply say the Israelites. But in that very small example, even though we know intellectually sons is supposed to be inclusive of all people, um, it is an exclusive term uh, in the order of man and, and mankind. So then we get to places where you see things like God spoke through all the former prophets and warned Israel about their sin. And so there are some people who are going to read that as only male. And so when I translate that, I translate it as God spoke through all the women and men who prophesied in former days, you know, about Israel's sin, because there was Deborah and Miriam and Huldah and Noajah and that woman that Isaiah had that baby with and didn't marry. And, you know, we don't talk about that much. Um, so rhetorical and theological of the point is Gaza. I told you, I told you every chance I got, I told you with tall prophets, I told you with short prophets, I told you with fat prophets, I told you with bald prophets. And yes, I told you with male prophets and I told you with female prophets. If, that, if the point is, God said, I told you with every kind of prophet I had out there, I sent them all to you and you still won't act right. Then translating that is, well, I sent you the prophetic brothers, um, undercuts the message of the text. Because the text is, you anybody even look halfway like a prophet, I sent to you and you still didn't do right. So rhetorically, it has to be translated fulsomely. Um, and so when we have a text like, you know, uh, Joshua burned out the Canaanites, then I expand that and say Joshua burned out the women, men, and children of Canaan. And then that looks very different because Canaanite is other. But when you start talking about women and men and children, then you have to contend with the inhumanity of that passage. So in every case where I, uh, as the rubric goes, translates women back into scripture, they are there. The daughters of Israel, the peoples of Canaan, the peoples of the land, right? Uh, and in the case of the prophets, uh, there, because demonstrably there were female prophets before that text, therefore all of the prophets is inclusive. So, so it's always a place where it's there goes a bit further and uh, Jesus is the son of David, then he's also the son of Bathsheba. And if we take seriously what that means, well, Jesus did not act like David, but he did kind of act like Bathsheba in terms of being associated with brokenness and scandal and you know abandonment and harm. Um, so uh, in the lectionary, I will often expand the genealogies to include the women uh, or, or even uh, frame the genealogy as exclusively female. So rather than the God of Jacob, it might be the God of Rebecca's lineage. And in every case, I leave a note for the reader uh, what I'm doing in that translation. Of course, that's all in the introductory stuff. And if someone has bought these books, they know that's what they're getting. But so there's notes for those all along the way. The one thing I do that is a different category is because people hear God prayed as, uh, as a male figure with masculine language. And when they hear God prayed in 
what we call inclusive or neuter language like creator or redeemer, many people are still hearing and seeing and imagining a male God because that language doesn't dislodge the masculine language. Yet the scriptures in both Testaments use feminine language and feminine imagery for God. Not a lot, certainly not on par with the masculine language. So I took that principle that the feminine language is there and invite the reader to hear God exclusively in feminine terms for many for the first time. So in the lectionaries, whenever there is a, a pronoun to be had for God in the Psalms, it is always feminine. Uh, and uh, people are uh, coming to these translations and finding them uh, refreshing and meaningful um, and speaking to something that they knew was lacking, lacking in other cases. I think I am so happy to hear you explain that in detail because often what a lot of your work and other people's work in this arena kind of gets labeled as in this overgeneralized way is, oh, it's this new wave of feminism. It's this, um, it's lazy translation. It is trying to put something on God that God is not. But what I hear in, hear in you is this careful, detailed, there's no laziness here. I know my stuff. <laughs> there, you know, and lest you just want to write it out as feminism and this just thought just came to my mind one day. Um, <laughs> and I'm just throwing stuff at, at the wall. No, there, I, here, here are my thoughts. Um, I love that you're able to like parse it out. No, here, here you go. Like, you know, show your work. Here's the work. Right. And so, and you, you say a, a lot of why you do what you do, even in the introduction um, of the lectionary. So I love that because there's all these articles that are being written about even gendered language for God and how God is always a he until this most recent feminism movement. And I love that you're pushing back on that in your work. So thank you for that. Well, two things. One, that's just text and cannot read it in its original languages. And that's a problem because they're not distinguishing translation from text and even reading the text, um, you know, idolizing the text is a problem because there's 5,000 manuscripts, you know, in the whole biblical translation project. But um, I came up in the black church, which has a very high reference for the word. And so I understood very early that anything I did had to meet um, the, the, you know, the church mother, church deacon test, show it to me in the word, baby, right? And so if we start in the word, then you must immediately contend, as I do at the very beginning of Womanist Midrash, with that when God is introduced in the beginning, Bereshit Bar Elohim, uh, when he, that is God created, the very next verb about God is, and then she fluttered over the face of the water. So anyone who says that God is not addressed 
or feminine uh, in the Bible is simply lying or ignorant, and neither of those qualify. So there, there are places where the language is explicitly feminine. Uh, Ruach is a feminine noun. Uh, in overwhelming cases, when it refers to the spirit, it's always feminine, and it takes a feminine verb. That, that's not feminism. That's ancient Afro-Asiatic grammar, right? Um, and so some of the implications of that is are that Jesus, as an Aramaic speaker, when uh, he talked about bringing you the spirit, leaving the spirit with you, he would only use feminine uh, pronouns because that's how the language worked. Right, that, those were the words that went uh, with that concept. So you have that there. Um, you have the only reproductive organs ascribed to God in Job. God asked Job's, um, out of whose womb did the sea come? Well, what is the answer to a rhetorical question like that? I don't know, but you don't have a womb because you're a man, right? Like, like no, God is like mine. That's the whole point of all those questions in Job. And then God gets non-binary on Job and said, who's the father of the rain and who gave birth to the snow, you know, in the same sentence. And Job's like, I don't really know how all those parts work. To, I don't know how that works. You know, I'm a, I'm a binary person. Not a really understand the non-binary God, right? You know, Jesus asked, tells this story about the shepherd and the lost sheep and everybody from a little kid, you know, who's glued the cotton balls on a paper plate in Sunday school and Bible camp knows that the shepherd is God and the lost sheep are the people. Well, what's the very next parable? Um, and it is the, uh, the orange cover of uh, my lectionary is there's a woman householder who had these coins and she lost one and she worked to get it back and then she called the neighbors. So Jesus told the same parable twice using a male figure as God the first time and a female figure as God the second time. So what happened to all those WWJD folk, right? So uh, to, to pull this back in, everything I do is anchored in the text linguistically. And when I'm making a decision like uh, using uh, feminine pronouns for God in the Psalms, it is because there are places where there is feminine language in the broader corpus. And as you say, I address all of this in the introduction to the lectionaries, and I have an entire unit on translation at the end of Womanist Midrash. And I have never yet had any um, so-called opposing view uh, engage me on the actual scholarship, right? That has never happened. I've never had a critique on any of this work in scholarly terms. Yeah, of course. No, not. <laughs> of course, <laughs> we're not doing that. Um, <laughs> of course not. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, <laughs> um, can you imagine? I, <laughs> I, I, I wanna center things around um, one of the offerings from your W uh and who this this was the first time i opened the lectionary and uh it was it was around um it was around hagar in the annunciation and i was like look at god <laughs> this is <laughs> look at god um and and one thing i'll say before that is i would recommend people getting this whether you're a preacher a teacher or not uh 
because something that I do, yes, I, I'm a theologian, et cetera, but I use these even devotionally. And I don't know if you've found people that ha- use this uh, work this way, but Absolutely. I- Absolutely. And that, that's one of the ways we market it is uh, to read the four lessons for a particular Sunday through the course of the week. Uh, read them all every day, read some of them uh, every day. Um, and then the what are what are framed as preaching notes are, are are study notes and can be used as devotional notes. So there are a number of people who are engaged in that practice around the lectionary. Mm-hmm. And that's the primary way that I engage it. Uh, I just give my cup of coffee, and this is a devotional for me. Uh, and for me, yes. So uh, I use that preaching notes that way myself, and uh, it launches me. <laughs> so that's what I would say. So. I'm curious as to this collection of works, you're translating Hagar back into the text and you're bringing her to the forefront, as well as a number of things that you're bringing here. Um, And I want to say some, I want to lift up something that you say in the text notes. Um, You say, um, the language of Hagar's enunciation parallels the promise to Abraham in Genesis uh, 13, 16 closely. Each is promised that their seed or offspring will be numerous beyond counting. Hagar is the first woman in scripture granted an enunciation. The unnamed mother of Samson follows in Judges 13, three through seven, followed in turn by Mary, the mother of Jesus. Hagar and Rebecca are the only women in the canon credited with their own seed or offspring. And so I'm just curious, uh, because a lot of people are interested in this particular question. (laughs) Um, um, Your thoughts on this particular uh, set of of notes and offering that you, you put here, and just anything that you might have on Hagar's enunciation, uh, I know the listeners will be um, blessed. Um, so the, for for year W, the task was to think about framing Advent, um, the season before Christ, Christmas, the season that is really about the advent of the second coming of Christ, for which we prepare by remembering his first coming. And the texts that we normally read are our attempts for to read the Hebrew. Bible as is reductionistically predicting Jesus. So my task in year, year W was to start the Christian year thinking about the longer picture of what it means to have an encounter with God after a season of Advent and preparation, and to prepare for that by looking back on the stories we had before. So expanding that paradigm. And because Annunciation is an important part of the Christmas story, although honestly, it's the wrong time of year because the Feast of the Annunciation is March 25th, takes nine months to make little baby Jesus, according to that calendar. Uh, I wanted to place the Annunciation to Mary in her cultural and scriptural context. What would she have been thinking of uh, if she were literate? What would she have read? What stories from the scriptures which she have remembered. So making the four weeks of Advent 
each address one of the annunciations, uh, Hagar and Hannah and Samson's mother, uh, in addition uh, to the ever blessed Virgin Mary, uh, sets the story, the stage for the story that's going to come next. So that's, that's how it's being set up. Um, in terms to a particular focus on Hagar and her annunciation, that was not my particular task. As you and your readers may know, uh, uh, esteemed scholar Dolores Williams has, has done that and is sort of the mother of uh, critical engagement with the Hagar story. Uh, it's been taken up uh, successively by other scholars. And honestly, I, I haven't written on Hagar myself because Hagar has been such an important figure in womanist biblical interpretation that she's been written on so much, um, I chose to you know, add my voice someplace else. Black Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for, for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod as well as Three Black Men.